Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. This Spiritual Fix presents TSF Shorts. A potluck of preludes between episodes. Hello, TSF listeners. Today is the second of our Primal Wounds interviews with our listeners. Today, you are going to be listening to the wonderful words of Theo Norcraft about the abandonment wound. Enjoy. Hello, Anna. Hey, Christina. And hello, Theo. <laughs> welcome, welcome. We are honored here to have Theo on our show, which is so meaningful for us because Theo has been one of our, he's been one of our just like through like fans and people who's like helped us so much to like know that we were doing good, <laughs> that we were doing the right thing. And so it means so much to me to be able to introduce Theo to our show to talk about the primal wounds and how they have shown up in his life. Welcome, Theo. Hi, thank you guys. It means so much to hear that I've helped you in some way because I can't tell you how much you guys have helped me throughout these past few years. Aww. We get emails from listeners sometimes and you are one of the most consistent ones. And yeah, we were like, this is awesome. This insight Theo's getting is like awesome. Like we always said, like if the podcast helps one person, it's worth it. Because sometimes it's a lot of work, the podcast. So I'm I'm grateful it's helped you. Oh yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you t- and that you grateful that you let us know. Sorry. That's what I meant. <laughs> um, so Theo, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Hi, I'm Theo. My pronouns are he, they. So I'm transgender and an English PhD student at the University of Toronto, specializing in sexual diversity studies. And broadly, I study critical race theory and transgressive sexes and genders of the pre-modern North Atlantic region. So what that means is I studied at Hauskuli Eastlands or the University of Iceland, where I focused on medieval Iceland and what I call trans Vikings. And that is the existence of historical and literary figures whom we would now recognize as transgender. And now I'm looking at what most people call Renaissance England, so England in the 16th and 17th centuries, and trying to figure out how racism and stories with all sorts of sex and gender transgressive characters and features related to each other and to the early moderns who created and consumed them. Now, I realize that this sounds like a lot of historical work, (laughs) and I guess that to some extent it is, but I see my job as working against the notion that trans people were like invented 10 minutes ago, or (laughs) some kind of propaganda or something. So Mm -hmm. understanding forms of transness that existed 400 plus years ago helps validate people like me, and in the words of the important artist and activist Leslie Feinberg, it helps us feel like we're actually part of the human race. So that's what I see my social justice project as being. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing with that. It's, it's so important and, and agreed in the sense that it feels like everything, like, like just, I remember a reflection when I was younger and I was growing up, it was like, I remember the moment when I found out that LGBTQ people existed. I was like probably four or five, six. And I thought that they had just been invented in that moment. Like I didn't, you know, because I had that like childhood thinking and the fact that it feels very so much. So people are like, oh, this just happened. It's like, 
guys, we're not four, five, or six. Like this is, you know, like this has happened for so long. So thank you. Thank you for that work. That's 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 beautiful. So we're talking about the primal wounds today and how the primal wounds have shown up in your life. So we often talk about the fact that there is a that we have all the primal wounds, but we often have a primary primal wound. So Theo, would you like to explain to us and express your primary primal wound? Yeah. So like you said, and like I went and re-listened to all of those, to those episodes, but I have all the primal wounds, <laughs> but my primary primal wound is the abandonment wound. And I think this was actually the first one that you guys recorded. And Anna did such a wonderful job explaining what your subconscious says to you when you have the abandonment wound. So I'm just going to repeat some of what you said, Anna, because I thought it was so good. So what your subconscious says when you have the abandonment wound is, quote, I'm going to pretend that I'm emotionally available and I want intimacy, but I'm actually really scared of intimacy. So I'll find somebody who's unavailable in some way so that I don't actually have to be intimate. But all the while, I'll act like it really hurts that I don't get to be with that person. It also says, quote, I'm going to try to heal and fix this person and then expect them to heal and fix me in return and then be super pissed that they didn't. It says that I will make myself indispensable to you to the point that I hurt myself because I'm ignoring my needs. And then I'll blame you for my feelings of exhaustion, emptiness, and disorientation. So these are all things that you said, Anna. And I remember when I was listening to it and just feeling so like exposed, but also really connected in like an important way, because you were describing, you were describing me better than I could describe me. <laughs> so I really appreciated that insight. And I was thinking to myself, well, where did I, where did I get these wounds or this wound primarily? And obviously I think like everybody, it goes back to family and I love my family very much, but we have, we are a very small unit. And when I was about five years old, something happened that I won't go into into too much detail, but my mom and grandma decided to completely cut off one whole branch of our family. As in, I still don't see them or know them. If I pass them on the street, I wouldn't recognize them. And I know that my grandma and my mom had their reasons for doing this, but I was too little to understand them. And all I saw was that the people who loved me most in the world and the people I loved most in the world could suddenly decide that you no longer exist to them. So my way of coping with that was just trying to be the perfect daughter. And I mean, perfect, perfect grades, perfect behavior, perfect everything, rising to the top of every school activity that I did. But then when I was in college and away from family for the first time, I realized that I actually had very little sense of who I was to me and who I would be when there was nobody there to give me a good grade or give me a pat on the back or say that I was being perfect in some way. So to my horror at the time, I realized who I actually was to me was not straight and was not a daughter at all, was not even cisgender. And that realization took years and I had to learn the LGBTQ plus lexicon and really start identifying my own feelings and understanding why I felt what I felt, what it was that I felt. And I had some very brilliant professors at the University of Toledo in Ohio in the English department there who helped me feel safe and held and supported. And I had a really brilliant therapist and I developed some sense of who I was, who I wanted to be. And then I began my process of coming out to my family. But coming out to your family and friends when you have an abandonment wound, it's like the most terrifying thing, right? Because I've always wanted to be perfect for people. And this was a good reason for them to just sort of give up on me or just leave me like they had that one branch of my family. So I decided to give them, I decided to come out slowly, give them the chance to be part of my life. And now it's been maybe four or so years. And I think things are on much more stable ground, but it was, it was a slow process. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was a lot of talking, but I know the whole narrative arc there. <laughs> I think it's interesting how you suffered as a child from the abandonment wound simply through observation of your mother and grandmother abandoning others. Like I think so often we think, oh, well, I myself didn't experience X, Y, or Z, but you just, just seeing it enough, just seeing that was traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. 
Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Were you, were you connected with the family? Like, were you like really close to the family that they cut off? The thing is not really. I mean, I was little. It's kind of hard to remember. They were my cousins. Um, and I used to see them at Christmas time, but no explanation was given. It was like a year or two later. And I remember I asked my parents, why aren't my cousins at Christmas? And then they're like, well, because of this reason, and now you're just not going to see them anymore. So I think this is a big misconception, right? That trauma has to happen directly to you for it to be trauma. And in most of my experience, well, perhaps luckily in most of my experience, I've just observed it one step removed and that's been enough to really shake my foundations. Um, And I think that's a really valid way of experiencing pain that we often don't recognize. Completely agree. I completely agree. I think that, I think, and if anything, it, when you're in those formative years, you're really experiencing the world and the rules and the guidelines. It's like, how are people supposed to operate? And like you said, you experienced that someone could one day from one day to the next with no explanation or reason, just decide to, to sever that, right. Yeah. Just decide. And it, and it's like a, it becomes a foundational, like understanding that, oh, you can, do that like that's even a possibility right like and when you're in the when you're in those formative years you want to think that the possibility of having something so terrible or you know having a decision so drastically made it's good to not to to kind of develop your support of who you are in life before that happens right yeah and what surprises me most i think is how this sort of one removed trauma that happened so long ago that i really had to think back to conjure up manifests in daily petty things like even i remember i don't know it was months ago where i emailed you guys and i think perhaps the email just got lost in the shuffle and there was like a week of a delay and i was like oh my god they've left me <laughs> they'll never respond to me again i remember I, that we, we were like out of town or something or yeah. like kids were sick or something yeah and it's stupid and i know like intellectually like that's not reasonable and it's not on you guys to i don't know respond to emails and two minutes flat, like sometimes happens because you guys are so on it. But all these little moments where you see these primal wounds bubbling up, Mm -hmm. it's just really amazing to me. It's funny you said that because yesterday I was in a drive-thru with my kids. We were on a little road trip and the guy didn't really get our order right. So we're sitting there at the window, like waiting. And there's a lot of conversation between him and I and back and forth about the food. And I keep looking over my shoulder, really worried that I'm going to uh, you know, piss off the car behind me. Mm-hmm. And I, and I kept saying to him, I don't want to make anyone behind us wait. He's like, no one's there. This time is all for you. And it was like hilarious. Cause I realized like how much, even on edge, the abandonment moon puts me in when I'm driving. Cause I'm scared. I'm constantly like monitoring if I'm pissing off the, the traffic behind me. I mean, I know it's little, but it's, it's just, it, it can show up in like very subtle ways all over the place. Yeah. And that through line that you were saying in terms of perfection, it's such a, it's such a fascinating aspect because, because for you, did you have a model of perfection in your mind? Like, did you have any, like, what, what was that, that, that ultimate view of perfection for you, like throughout and yeah, yes, I did. <laughs> my brother, <laughs> the firstborn golden boy, my parents loved me and my brother equally. But to me, my brother was always this model of what I need to achieve so that I can be good and whole. And unfortunately, my brother ended up being cisgender and straight, which is just exhausting because sometimes you want to not be the first person to come out in your family. So anyway, always aspiring to be as good as he seemed to be in the family's eye was what I was trying to accomplish. Yeah. And that's, that is exhausting. That's exhausting. Has that, has that shifted? I know we're going to talk in a, in a moment about kind of how you've dealt with the abandonment wounds. So maybe we, maybe we wait for that, for that, but like, has that shifted for time? Is it still brother or is it, is it, do you feel like it's kind of moved into the space or maybe that's a good transition to talk about how you've. Yeah. Yeah. Dealt with yeah. the abandonment wound. I tell you what, it's really interesting because my brother was, he didn't, do anything to call on this aura of the golden child but he still had it and then whenever we got older 
And and when it came to coming out to people who were more conservative within my family, my brother was my first and best ally. He defended me to the hilt on every issue. He was the one pushing for people to acknowledge my preferred name and pronouns. And I think that as we've become adults, like, I mean, there's a unique relationship where we both understand exactly the dynamic that we are of and from. And we have each other in really profound and important ways. Yeah, so watching that relationship evolved, evolve has been has been really interesting. What tools have you used from the podcast and from life in general have you used to help heal or accept the abandonment wound and, and then how it plays out in your life? Yeah, so I use some of the tools that you guys have sort of cited in passing. So, and I know you've worked with Ram Das a lot. And so as I was listening to you guys, I also looked into Ram Das's lectures on YouTube and there's a podcast, the Ram Das podcast, I think. And so I sort of have his voice sort of echoing in the back of my mind sometimes. And there's this one moment where he was talking about his relationship with his own guru, who whose name escapes me now. But he was talking about dealing with the idea that his guru from beyond the grave is sort of having a relationship and causing miracles with other people. And Ramdas was like, it's fine. Like, where's he going to go? I don't feel bad. Like he's still here. And this deep realization that on one plane of existence, you are always necessarily connected to everything around you. You can't be abandoned. And I'm just, I'm just reiterating the incredible, sharp and brilliant work that you guys have already done. But like, I'm just, that's sort of my function here, right? Is to say like, this is the thing that has really stuck with me. I can't be abandoned. That's one plane of existence. But I want to emphasize that that plane is often inaccessible to me when I'm feeling really bad or when I'm dealing with my own depression and anxiety. So the way I sort of, sometimes the way I have to work myself up toward that second plane is I remember and I realized that I, my number one rule nowadays is never believe anybody if they say that they're not going to leave you. <laughs> and that does, that sounds kind of sad and bad, but I don't mean put a wall up between you and everybody that you ever meet. And I don't mean distrust everybody. What I mean is acknowledge that life is tricky. People with great intentions can be forced into circumstances where things change. And even if everything aligns and that person does stick with you for your whole life, because nothing bad happens there, they're going to die at some point. And everybody will abandon you or leave you at some point. But also nobody can ever leave you ever. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really know how to hold those two things together, but I think they're both equally true. And somehow by holding both of those planes of existence in your mind, you can sort of, I don't know, move your sense of self among them enough to keep yourself going for longer. Other times I just hug my cat and that works. You know, it reminds That's me of something my, another friend of mine once told me it like hit the nail on the head. She said that she had to go somewhere or leave and she could tell that I was getting anxious. And she's like, Anna, I'm not leaving you. I'm just going somewhere else. Oh, that's so good. And it was like, yes, like people don't necessarily leave me. They just go somewhere else. And so like some people are always going to go somewhere else, maybe like if they die or whatever, but it doesn't mean that they're always leaving you. God, that's so right. Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I was just having a moment with it. I was just like, <laughs> we were all like basking in the glow of that wisdom there. <laughs> um, so one of the things we talk about on the podcast is that as you do this work, maybe your wound never disappears, but the triggers become less frequent, less intense and, and, and less long, you know, for shorter duration. So can you give us some examples of ways that you've seen shifts for you in the way that things that previously triggered you don't mm -hmm. as much anymore? I mean, they still might, but it might just be less. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. And one thing I wanted to hold on to 
when I knew that I was going to speak with you guys was the idea that I'm not doing great. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of people can be doing better, but not do great. And I can recognize my triggers sooner, much sooner than before. And I can sort of like, okay, let's get concrete. I had a recent sort of falling out with some friends and I was feeling awfully bad about it, awfully bad about it. And I was dealing with my own sort of, I was dealing with a lower plane of existence and not really able to climb higher, except I had a moment on the subway where I very intentionally sat down and thought, because I had written out my comments that I was going to say to you guys about connecting to this sort of great eternal space or whatever. I was like, okay, you wrote that out. You're about to give this advice. Why don't you try to take your own advice for a hot second and see how it works? <laughs> so I sat there on the subway and I was like, okay, imagine yourself connected to everything in the universe. And Ram Dass is like in the back of my head going, where's he going to go? <laughs> and like all these sorts of, <laughs> sorts of like <laughs> spiritual threads, like flickering through my mind. And I had this moment where I felt my mind sort of lift itself in my own head. And I felt so disconnected from everything and so connected to everything. And I looked over and this one woman was just, just looking at me. And I don't know what that meant, but it felt like this kind of like recognition that like something, there was some kind of movement upwards. So I'm able to move myself into that space when I'm very intentional about it. But it it's it's fleeting right now for me. I know I have a lot of work to do to be able to maintain myself there and deal with less hills and valleys when it comes to my own emotional regulation. Yeah. I was going to say, do you ever feel like maybe I should just enjoy my suffering? I know that sounds really, I know that sounds really fucked up, but you know, sometimes I'm in a really bad mood and, and like Christina or my other friend, Nicoletta will be like, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. And then I'm like, maybe I should just enjoy suffering. Maybe I should just enjoy that. I'm feeling fucking like shit. And, and sometimes feeling like shit feels good. I know that's fucked up, but sometimes feeling vengeful or pissed or sad, you know, I, I feel like we put so much you know, superlatives on what is spiritual, but maybe sometimes spirituality is just being like, uh, I fucking hate being, you know, I fucking hate myself right now. And I love this feeling. <laughs> See, this is why I love you guys. You're so real. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets a lot more credit for that than I do for sure. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> you're real. <laughs> I like the ephemeral, but yes, no, but go, please don't, don't let me take that away from your answer. <laughs> well, I don't know, to be honest, I'm going to try that. Like, I, like I said, very intentional. If I'm, if I'm, unless I am being very intentional about grappling this stupid, what's the, what's the metaphor that, I don't know, some strand of Buddhism often refers to like a stung monkey. That's like chattering around in your head, whatever that metaphor is. Yeah. Yeah. Unless I'm very intentional about dealing with that thing in my head, it's just going to do whatever it wants, right? Which is true for everybody. But I feel like mine has been particularly unruly lately. So maybe I will try to sit down and be like, yes, I am this stung monkey <laughs> that's crashing symbols around in my head. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. Or, yeah. or, or also I feel like there's something here too with like, like you have the monkey that is like, in your head and you're chasing it right like I mean I, I call them recursive thoughts at this point because I keep thinking of you know like algorithms and programming in our minds right but like you know where it's it's wanting to try and it's the sudoku puzzle with no solution right it's you're chasing the monkey you're chasing your monkey you're chasing your monkey and and the moment you say I'm the monkey I'm the person chasing the monkey and I'm also the body right and i can just watch the person chase the monkey and watch it because it feels good to chase those thoughts it feels good to do that right because it feels like there's a solution somewhere if i think about this hard enough there is a way that i can come out of this either as i mean that's when you get into the drama triangle right there's somewhere there's a way i can come out of this as the victim or there's mm -hmm. a way that i can come out of this and i can rescue everybody 
right? Like, and that's obviously very prominent with the abandonment wound is wanting to be the rescuer, right? And you're just like, if I think about this hard enough, I can do that. And then we say, or I'm all these things. I'm, I'm, I'm all aspects of these drama triangle. And it's like, it's like, it's exactly like what you're saying. It's like this idea of like, expanding out from that one perspective from just that one perspective or even just those two perspectives and just being like can i be okay with all these things and still be perfect right or can i go can i be okay with all these things and be and you know feel flawed and feel whatever and actually just still love myself and that's what i mean by be perfect and just still love myself mm-hmm you know, it's funny this morning, my husband and I, we were talking about a friend of mine who had like a really disappointing anniversary, a wedding anniversary with her husband. And she's disappointed. And my husband's like, don't you see how lucky she is? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, she's completely rigged the game. So she will always be dissatisfied. And then her husband is dissatisfying her. So he's actually perfect for her. But she can't see that. She can only see that she's dissatisfied. So it's like, I'm not trying to romanticize suffering <laughs> necessarily, but like sometimes existential we, kink. <laughs> we, we, yeah, existential, we rig the game to experience this horrible, horrible in quotes emotion, but we get to experience that emotion, which is kind of what we wanted all along. So aren't we lucky that we got what we wanted? Yeah. It reminds me, I forget where I heard this because I've been down the self-help road for a while now but this idea that you're always getting some kind of payoff like your choices it might not be the obvious payoff that you that people would think that you want but you're always getting the payoff that like that your body like or subconscious like needs in some way right like I will pretend like I want intimacy but I really don't so my payoff is that I don't ever get the intimacy that I want right and if you asked me while I'm conscious (laughs) uh my conscious mind to say well what do you want well I want intimacy but really the answer is no no you don't everything that you are doing tells me that you don't want that except perhaps this conversation this is a good conversation (laughs) (laughs) right yeah and then but then but then with the abandonment when we also want to think that we are seeking intimacy because we love that romanticized version of the yeah. the 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 helper rescuer lover kind of thing yeah you know, and, you I almost know, wonder if the band if the each primal wound has its archetype that we strive for like this false archetype of of something yeah and I really feel like I've been thinking about this a lot like the love stories that we or I at least you know grew up listening to or watching it's always about this one person longing for somebody and then eventually something happens so that they can, so that there can be, there there will no longer be unrequited love, but rather there'll be this great consummation and things will come together, right? In some beautiful and profound way. None of these love stories are helpful and almost all of them have bad relationships in them. <laughs> and we have all these blueprints that we've downloaded from the time that we were so little. And when you go back and you realize everything you've downloaded has some kind of weird, toxic story to it or something that your own experiences have made into something that will be toxic for you, Mm -hmm. right? You have to really intentionally deprogram and reimagine how you're going to live your life. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Either that or you, what just came when you were saying that was like, also like the striving for, for coupling, it feels like you could almost internalize it and be like, what is the internal coupling that I need? right? This isn't, this isn't an external fairy tale. What does the internal fairy tale look like? Like, you know, like even if you keep the same narrative, even if you keep the same happy ending, like what does that happy ending look like when it happens inside my body? Right. And inside my own internal space. Yeah. And that goes really well with one of the things that I wanted to bring up that you guys have provided me with, which is using sort of visualization techniques to help get yourself back into your body and get yourself grounded. So what just came to me, Chris, when you were suggesting taking fairy tales, reworking them because the story itself is so powerful, but reimagining them to help you is this visualization where you imagine you split yourself into two, essentially. One is your inner child and one is like this parenting figure. And you guys have said this, I just don't remember when. 
and you talk to your child self and you say, I'm here, I've got you. And this time when the adult version of you says, I will never leave you, that's the truth, right? Because when you die, you, both of you <laughs> died together, right? There's no way for you to abandon yourself in that configuration. Yeah. So visualizing has been extremely helpful and Okay. So like, that's like one whole thought, but then I, I will have another thing to talk about when it comes to visualization and dreams, whenever a good chance for that is. Yeah. Why don't you expand on that? We'd love to hear it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So one of the very first things that you guys taught us was feeding your demon, which was just completely counterintuitive to me because growing up in a very sort of Catholic household, you don't feed demons, <laughs> you exercise them and yes. you pray your rosary, right? So when I realized that there, everybody has some kind of, well, this is my hot take. Everybody has something that's sort of eating at them in some way, or maybe this is, maybe everybody doesn't, whatever. In my experience. <laughs> I would say yes. I would say yes. <laughs> and if As you, like, yeah, if, if you're on earth, I would say yes, right? <laughs> Yeah. So what I have started to do sometimes when I'm in, when I'm in a good place with that monkey in my head is when I lay down to go to sleep, trying to ask myself to give whatever that thing eating at me that day or at that time is give it a shape and visualize this demon. And sometimes that is actually going through the exercise and saying, like, what do you want from me? And giving it more of that, imagining yourself giving more to it until it's satisfied and then watching it become an ally and help you. But sometimes it's having it sort of explain to you, like, why you're hurting or what's bothering you. And I found that when I do that, the dark, terrifying thing stops being so dark and terrifying. And I sort of I, re- I don't wrestle it back, but I wrestle it. It is, I mean, I guess it is the process of the demon becoming the angel, right? This this negative thing becoming an ally to help you. And I've been trying very hard to get better at controlling dreams. What do they call it? When you control your- Lucid? Lucid yes, dreaming? Lucid yeah. dreaming. Because I don't know, but I really do believe that after we die, some how your mind sort of works when it's like untethered is sort of the experience you might have right after you pass so I really think that if you can control your dreams better that that will be overall a better experience for you and for a very long time anytime I would get close to lucid dreaming a demon kind of entity or thing would come to me terrify me and move me out of that space so ever since I started practicing confronting this dark energy while I'm still awake ever since I started practicing that, I'm able to completely handle it in my dream. I'm able to like maintain a sort of willpower in my subconscious that pushes it away or through or integrates it or something so that I can then access the space of having good dreaming energy and space. And it has been so helpful and important to me because I think it's it's me entering my own mind and seeing that I'm doing healing in some really important ways. That sounds huge. (laughs) Yeah. And it also reminds me of the guardian of the gate, right? Like that's, that's a, in shamanic journeying, the guardian of the gate is this, is that exactly how you describe it, right? It's, it's a force that's there to stop you from entering any basically stop anybody who's not worthy from entering that threshold into more of a shamanic journeying space or mm-hmm. a lucid space past that threshold, right? And being able to address that guardian, um, whether it's a whether it's a personal demon or whether it's this more collective aspect of the guardian of the gateway, like it makes it so that you're you're gaining you've been initiated to the point where you're able, it's like an initiation in order to be able to allow you to to move into that lucid space. So that's really beautiful and and wonderful that you've you've used that as as your ability to kind of move past that space because it's supposed to it's supposed to be a jump scare in a lot of ways, right? Yes, that's what it feels like. Yeah. A jump scare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's wonderful. What when you were kind of developing your visualization skills, 
you know, a lot of times I talk with my clients and, and they have, they have issues with believing that what they're doing is real. So for you, and I know I remember some of those early emails. So I'm curious, like what, what was it for you that like helped you to understand that these experiences were just as real as anything else? That's such an interesting question. I don't know if my answer will do it justice, but I guess part of my experience as somebody who's been researching history and stories and different accounts of different events throughout time is I don't believe in the real. (laughs) (laughs) And by that, I mean, I believe that people have perceptions of things. And if there is some kind of, if there is some kind of objective, like, real capital R real I'm not even sure it's valuable because everybody's perceptions are the way things actually get negotiated in social structures right and so I've just sort of stopped valuing this idea that there is this brass tax capital R real reality and instead been asking myself is it helpful for me is it useful for me I don't think real is sort of, I don't even know if it's my business, to be honest. Like, I don't know. I think it might be beyond my pay grade. (laughs) I don't know. I love that answer. I think that that's, I think that that's spot on. Is is real, is reality my business? I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. There's this one book. Sorry if I, no, I'm going to write it down. I love, well, I'm not, you don't have to read. It's not a self-help book or anything, but there's this George Saunders novel called Lincoln and the Bardo. And I love it so much, but there's this moment where it's this, all these different accounts of people looking up at the moon and trying to describe like what the moon looked like on this very particular night. And one of them's like, the moon was this full yellow. And then one was like, the moon was nowhere in the sky. And then one was like, the moon was this or this and all these different accounts of the same thing. And it's like, yeah, I guess there's probably some real moment that the moon did exist. I believe that there is a moon and it is in the sky and it did do something, but it's not, it it doesn't matter. There's a million and one perceptions of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that idea of the fact that there is even one consensual reality is such a fallacy, right? Because we are mutually all creating reality in any given moment. And that's when you're just like, that's when you, when we see the thing, the sp- aspect of like this person's reality and the way that they want to express themselves in the world, everybody should have their space to do that. Right. And it's like, Anna and I talk about everybody has their garden and all our garden is basically one giant garden, but we can feel like we have our own plot. And the important part is that we allow us to grow our garden and we learn from what our neighbors learn and we don't stop or infringe on anybody from creating theirs. So yeah, that's, I love that. I love that, that view of reality. Thank you. Do you have any, any final thoughts on that you want to share with us? Anything else that you prepared that you'd like to share? Cause or, or advice for listeners. Yes. I guess I would just say this is something I realized when I was trying to do the feed the demon exercise feed your demon exercise I and this is something I might throw back to you because I'm playing devil's advocate with the feed the demon exercise (laughs) I was trying to do it one time and I realized that I got caught in the step where you're just getting gobbled up by the demon and I couldn't quite get past there and I couldn't finish the exercise. I remember Anna talking about how she did it once and the thing was telling her to like visualize her husband dying and her kids dying, these terrible things. But because she stuck with it and got through it, was able to move into the space of realizing that, you know, she could never be abandoned. But I think that there's, there needs to be maybe a warning label that comes with the feed the demon exercise, because if you can't stick through it all the way, like if you're left on the floor thinking like watching, you know, your husband or kids die or whatever, before you get to the moment where it turns into the ally, then you're left in a really bad place where you're just gobbled up by the demon and there's nothing left. And lately I've kind of felt like sometimes I'm getting stuck in that, in the teeth of the demon rather than in the hands of an angel. And I'm not sure exactly what to do when you can't finish that exercise. Yeah. That's, I think that that's a really important thing to call out. And 
what I would say is that, as you mentioned, I think the processes that we take on are here for our help, right? In the sense that they're here to help us. And I think that we can go through periods of having a process be incredibly helpful. And then we can find that suddenly it's it needs to evolve within our own spirit, right? Within mm-hmm. our own space, right? And so that's, so if you're finding it, I'll, and, and Anna, you might have thought about addressing it too, but I'll address that. But I also think that there's kind of a meta commentary here too, which is this idea that like, you know, one of the things that I work with people on is like, is this idea of play, And it's like, if the process as it was written down is not working and you need to start to improvise and play with a different way that wasn't necessarily there before, that's where it's like, okay, I'm going to use this like totally brilliant mind of mine to like come up with a way to shift this, right? To maybe, to maybe like what we would call kind of shift the rules or the previous guidelines and recognize that I need to go to a place and I need to get into a place where I feel safe and where I do not feel like I'm stuck in this and in, in being fed, you know, and being fed to this thing. So maybe what I do is I feel like I'm just like stuck in the jaws and maybe it's like, a, you know, like it's like a ridiculous type of thing. Like you just imagine the most ridiculous thing that can happen to that demon, right? And you're able yeah. to kind of shift the way that it is, like the fearsome place that it's taken you shift the, that reality because if it, it it is it is something that is existing in your shamanic field and your ability to overcome it is one part surrendering to it and also recognizing the power like maybe you've come into this place where your your space is to say like i'm actually coming into my power i still like i still like Last night I was walking down my hill and there had been a bunch of people who were whistling outside at night. And I have this weird superstition with whistling at night in the middle of the woods. Mm. And I was like walking back with my dog and I was like, I'm just going to put on my Durga. Right. And I just like put on this, like, you know, it's my like multi-armed goddess because I, you know, was feeling a moment of fear. And I was like, this maybe isn't a real fear, but at the same time, I didn't feel like addressing anything. So I took on that more powerful image and that in and of itself became my, my tool in that mm-hmm. moment for recognizing and like feeling the power within myself. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. So while I see myself in the teeth of this demon, I suddenly become a gigantic demon myself and take it on or something, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's it. That's exactly it. Right. Is that, is that, there's something to be said for the orthodoxy, but you've taken on the orthodoxy of the practice so much that you can now be generous with it, right? Mm. Like you can be generous and play with it and recognize and start to trust that instinct because that's part of what you're doing, right? You're coming into your own sovereignty with these processes, right? You learn and then you bring it into your body. Does it help me? Okay. It's mm. helping me right now. And then it's less helpful. So so what, what, what is it now? What's this new place I'm stepping into? Maybe this is me coming into the full power of being this, this like, yeah, this, this multi-headed demon. Who's just like, bit like, don't, don't, <laughs> whatever it is. Anna, do you have any thoughts? Well, I've called upon like deceased or people in ultraverse places to help me sometimes when I get stuck, when it's like just too big. I'll be like, mm. okay, I need you, Archangel Michael, or Ram Das, Osho, like I, Buddha. Like I'll just imagine I ha- I get an army and they help me. Or even just say, can we couch this? Like, like I've definitely couched processes before where I'm like, look, I'm not getting anywhere. It's been a week that I still feel really raw or bad about this. Can we just couch this till I'm ready? And sometimes even just acknowledging like we are going to, deal with this but just I'm not ready right now helps mm-hmm. that that also helps because sometimes you know it's like what, what do they say when you own a phone and you're like I have a friend who owns a phone and she like never checks her phone and I'm like why don't you ever respond to your text she's like I own my phone my phone doesn't own me and I'm like bitch <laughs> like you own the process the process doesn't own you yeah so so you get to decide you know like hey everybody all my parts I know this is a lot, but we're going to just couch this for when I am mentally and emotionally strong enough to tackle it. And for now, can we just live our life? Yeah, Anna, when you were describing bringing in other beings to help you face 
your whatever process you're dealing with. I just had this moment where I imagined that moment, <laughs> moment in like Avengers Infinity War where Captain America like calls in <laughs> all those people that come in through like portals or whatever. And yes. All this backup just manifests around. Yeah. Avengers I've done assemble. that so many times. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, imagine yeah. them holding hands around me and they're all like, yes, we got this. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's, that is a really important part of all of this, right? Which is that like, I mean, if we haven't said it once and we'll say it again, which is like one of, I, one of the best affirmation is I am not supposed to suffer for my process. Like I don't have to suffer for my process, right? I don't have to be in pain all the time in order to do process. And I also don't have to process all the time, right? Like that's the thing. I think that's I think that what we can fall into that place of like, of especially perfectionists, right? And especially people who want to be indispensable all the time and above reproach all the time yeah. is we keep processing and you keep processing because then, then you're above reproach. Then you're above ever, ever being able to say, I didn't do this right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately you just gotta, I mean, you just have to embrace that, right? Like it's just, just, just you, Theo, embracing every single aspect of yourself and knowing that, you know, there are people who you may hurt. There are people who are going to hurt you. And just like really embracing that aspect of humanity will make it so that the perfectionism, it's like almost like tilting the perfectionism to be less about, I am this perfect ideal and more about what happens if, what happens if the perfectionism is just in the acceptance of myself as, as lovable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, I remember we interviewed Dr. Alicia Antica for the sexual abuse episode. And she said something about processing. She's like, cause we get addicted. I know Christina and I sounds like maybe you, we all get like addicted to the process you know, like, oh, which shadow work? What can I clean up next? Which what's the next shadow work? Pro- what's the next demon I can conquer? Whatever or integrate. And she's like, you know, you get to a point and 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 you enjoy your life, you know. And I've been <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> God, it's so hard sometimes. <laughs> it is hard, and I think like when it is hard, then you definitely tackle those shadow work things, but also you know, it's, it's nice sometimes to take a break from shadow work too. You know, I don't know. I've been taking a long break from shadow work and I'm loving it. (laughs) It might bite me in the ass tomorrow, but. (laughs) Well, I think my big realization lately is not trusting innocence. Like you're not, nobody's innocent. You can't be innocent ever. And no matter how long I tried to think myself into being a hero or, being whatever, there's still going to be some way where I'm implicated in something. And that's not to say that everybody's as bad as everybody else, no matter what you do, or you should never fight for your rights or for whatever. But it is to say that at some point you have to, at some point you have to just give yourself permission to be alive as a person, as a human who's not going to have everything figured out. And that's just going to have to be, you're going to have to be perfectly okay with being imperfect. Yes. Yes. And it's, did you ever watch The Good Place? No. Okay. Well, there's a a very interesting moment. I won't, I won't try and do too much of a spoiler, but you know, the game is continually rigged against us according to all traditional religions because we are born as sinful beings right you can't even buy a tomato without going to hell according to oh yes okay i've heard of yes yes right you can't that's what, I was, that's what i was thinking of without even realizing it yeah right like you're gonna you're gonna harm something you're gonna do something like you cannot buy a tomato without somebody being in indentured service or just something happening along those lines. Right. So it's like, you need to go to the place in which, you know, it it is, and it's not a matter of continually having to redeem yourself Mm -hmm. from these, these guilty sins, whatever you want to call them, like these experiences of things. It's like, actually, if I can love myself and if I can like come into the acceptance of myself and do the best that I can, 
Um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't, and it, and it's the best that I can in this moment. And it doesn't necessarily have to be magic and it doesn't have to be perfect. And it's just the best I can, then maybe that's the, maybe that's the thing, right? I think that's right. But I remember vaguely, I don't know if this is exactly from the good place, but somebody saying you can't even buy a chicken sandwich without hating gay people or something like that. And this was referencing Chick-fil-A. And see, this this is the key distinction, though, right? Like, I don't <laughs> I don't go to Chick-fil-A because they support conversion therapy. And you have to be OK with not being innocent. But that there is a limit right? And negotiating yes. Yes. what that is, right? Like I'm still not going to go to Chick-fil-A and I kind of don't like how flippant that statement is in the good place or that kind of a comment because I'm actually quite jealous of people who still get to enjoy Chick-fil-A <laughs> <laughs> the sandwiches. And I used to really love that, but that was before I knew I was, that's, that was before I knew what I was. Right. So you 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 want to try to make the world a better place, but you also need to radically accept the world. And you have to figure out how to hold on to both of those things. And you have to make your world a better place, like your experience of the world a better place. And if that means aligning with your values and knowing that your values are coming from a place in which you're not wanting to harm and you're like acceptance and you're like in a place in which you're, you know, you're as loving as possible to as many aspects of yourself as possible, then, then, Hey, go forth. Right. You know, and just make yourself like, have, be happy in that, you know, be happy in that. I mean, not happy. Yeah. I'll work on it guys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Theo. Thank you for being on. Thank you for for sharing, sharing and, and, take or leave whatever we say and go forth in your journey. Yeah. Well, thank Thank you. you. And remember humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it. And all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.